Welcome to the Career Zone podcast, where each episode we spend some time focusing on something that's on students' minds right now. I'm your host, Rachel, Employability and Careers Consultant with the University of Exeter. You can catch up on all of our episodes by doing all of those subscribing and following things. We're on Spotify and iTunes. So good morning, Gordon. Thank you for joining us today for this podcast episode. I'm sure it's going to be a really useful episode for students to hear all about your experiences so far. Um, With that in mind, I wondered if we could just start by you telling us a little bit about your current role with Siemens Energy. Yes, yeah, certainly. Thank you very much for the uh, for the invite. Uh, very happy to uh, to be here. Um, so um, I currently work at uh, Siemens Energy as uh, principal counsel uh, competition. Uh, Siemens Energy is a is an energy technology company, and so uh, I'm actually uh, a specialist in what is referred to as competition law. And so I deal with competition law topics uh, across the board for um, for Siemens Energy. So that can be anything from mergers and acquisitions, uh, cartel investigations, competition litigation, compliance uh, topics as far as they relate to competition law. So uh, a very broad and varied diet. And that's, of course, one of the uh, kind of key uh, things that are interesting when you're an in-house counsel. But I think we might come to talk about that a little bit uh, in a minute. Yes, definitely. And I know that you've had a really interesting and varied career journey so far. Um, which we're we're going to find out more about. I wondered if we could start with the 10 years that that you spent in Exeter. Would you be able to talk us through that? Yeah, certainly. So I think um, I wouldn't necessarily have anticipated that I would spend uh, kind of 10 years there when I uh, arrived back in uh, in 1992. Um, So I'd gone to school in uh, in Munich and then decided to go and study uh, law, the LLB Euro with German um, at Exeter, and it was um, I had a fairly long process of deciding where I wanted to go and uh, and study. Uh, there were possibilities to study in the Netherlands, possibilities to study in Germany, but ultimately uh, I decided to uh, to go to to go to Exeter. Um, so I did my undergraduate degree there. At that point, um, the way it worked was that you did your third year in Germany, and then you came back uh, for your final year. Um, these days, I think uh, you do it the other way around, which is that you have the um, uh, you have the three year degree and then you do a um, uh, the fourth year is then a master's course. Uh, so that's uh, that would have been that would have been nice uh, if that had been available when I did it. But it's uh, it simply wasn't uh, wasn't available. Um, and then I uh, decided to stay on and do a master's uh, also at um, at Exeter. And uh, the way that it works then with uh, training contracts, usually you would apply uh, in your penultimate year for uh, kind of the to do law school at the end of your degree and then uh, the training contract after that and and I fell out of that rhythm slightly so I essentially had a year uh, left over in which I then decided to do a master's course uh, and then was approached by one of my professors to say you know uh, do you have any uh, kind of jobs lined up and of course I didn't because I hadn't applied for uh, for training contracts at the relevant time Um, and so uh, I ended up uh, doing a PhD uh, as well, which took a bit longer than I ideally would have uh, would have liked, but uh, that's the problem if someone tells you to basically write a book and come back to me in three years. Uh, so of course it did take a, it did take a while uh, for me to do that. Um, but um, but so so I ended up uh, spending ten years uh, in Exeter, having then got uh, got three degrees. So my LB Euro with German, my Masters in European Legal Studies, and then uh, my PhD. 
Uh, and I was a bit concerned as to whether I would uh, be able to uh, kind of come back from academia uh, into, uh, let's say, the the practicing of law. But I think we'll come on to that uh, uh, next. But uh, that did work out, thankfully. So I'm quite happy about that. Yeah, that's an impressive portfolio of academic qualifications there, isn't it? Definitely. Um, I, I was just wondering, as I was listening there, what it was like um, coming to study in a completely different country, you know, initially. Did you say it was ni- 1992? Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah so, so what was that like, you know, coming to, to England to study? Um, so I think uh, I at that time uh, had not necessarily uh, kind of given a lot of thought uh, after leaving school. Uh, I had applied to UK universities, so I'd made that decision uh, at some stage. Um, but uh, I remember in the first term in particular being very homesick because I was um, uh, frankly quite far away from uh, from my parents. I mean, my parents lived in, lived in Germany at the time. I'd moved to a different country. Uh, and so uh, it was quite unlike Many of the other students who were all based locally, they could go home, you know, literally for the for the weekend, you know, have uh, mum do their washing and uh, come back, you know, kind of fresh on Sunday evening. That was not uh, uh, not the way that it worked uh, for me. I mean, I only ever uh, came back home during the uh, the long uh, breaks at Christmas, uh, Easter and the summer. Um, so so that was a that was quite a big, uh, quite a big change. Of course, I spoke the language, so there was no problem. Uh, there was no problem with that. Uh, but it did take a bit of getting used to. And I think, uh, you know, if I look now, I mean, I've got uh, uh, two daughters myself and, uh, you know, I am still of the opinion that it was very good for me at that time uh, to move abroad, to uh, become independent. That is a key kind of aspect of developing your personality you know many friendships that you make at university uh, kind of last a lifetime and so I would not at all encourage my own daughters to for example you know study in the next town I would very much uh, prefer for them to go a bit further away to really kind of you know break that that uh, kind of connection that you have uh, with where you've grown up and I don't mean that in a negative way I simply mean that it's good to see other places to you know to not have the easy option of just returning home every time that you have an issue um so i think that uh, for me even though i had a tough uh, first term i got used to it at uh, at some stage and uh, you know very much think at least with hindsight that that was a good um that was a good thing to do and uh, you know we had a fairly small class i mean we we were seven people doing the llb euro uh, german then another seven or eight uh, doing uh, the french version uh, so we had a pretty tight kind of very friendly group of uh, group of students so i you know had a good time kind of there but i think i didn't have the traditional problem of um uh, you know going to another country i didn't have a language issue or anything like that Uh, but it was a big change um i mean i I just literally turned 18 uh, so i was also on the young side um but um you know looking back uh, i think it was the right decision and something i never regretted yeah it sounds like difficult at the start but worth it for what you gained on on reflection. So some really good advice there for our students who might be in similar positions. I was also going to ask you, what made you decide to do a PhD? But listening to you talk earlier on, it sounds like it was by default you were approached to do it. Yes, I think think in the UK, certainly when it comes to law, it is a fairly unusual thing to do because realistically you're going to take uh, kind of three years or longer and uh, clearly every year that you spend uh, doing something like a PhD is time that you lose uh, comparing to you know everyone else who is uh, starting work uh, you know kind of getting on with their career 
and um and i and i do remember also uh, when i when i started work which we'll come on to in a second um that um you know the idea that i had pursued at least for a time an academic career which included teaching etc uh, you know did not necessarily go down you know all that well so it's not you know it's not something that law firms were screaming out for quite the opposite i mean i got a number of rejections which very much referenced my uh, academic background and uh, mm. said well it looks like you're pretty academic so we don't really think you're uh, that interested in practicing law which was frankly false but uh, you know and it's mm. ultimately uh, their loss uh, but uh, but yes I mean it's true that I I, I rather slipped into doing the uh, the PhD but I never regretted it in particular because you know now here being based in Germany um, I have a similar qualification to many of the other lawyers around me so here it is very standard uh, to do uh, to do a PhD um, uh, it takes less time here in Germany than it does uh, in the UK, but um, you know, I think we've all we've all got similar qualifications in our team, and uh, so there are a number of people who uh, have also done PhD. So again, something that was maybe a challenge at the time, but ultimately uh, good for my career. Of course, I never thought in my wildest dreams at the time when I was doing the PhD that I would end up working in Germany. But I've ended up in a country where academic qualifications are uh, are very important and are pretty widespread amongst the uh, professional uh, community. That's really interesting, isn't it? That it was viewed, how it was viewed in England, and then you've gone back to to Germany, and um, actually, you're kind of it's it sounds like it's almost a level playing field with your peers. That's that's really yep. interesting. Yeah. So going back to your career journey after the the ten years in Exeter, I believe you then spent ten years working in London. Was it 10 years? Have I got that correct? Yeah, Yeah, 10 years. And so obviously you'll know from mentoring students at Exeter, a lot of them have aspirations to go and work in in London. I wondered if you could share some of your your own experiences working in in London and living in London, I guess. And just to give students a little bit of an idea about what to expect, you know, the realities of it maybe. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yes, indeed, I um I secured a training contract with a law firm called S.J. Berwin uh, at the time. That doesn't uh, exist anymore. It merged with a law firm called Kingwood Mallisons, and then had a uh, a rather uh, a rather negative end, uh, shall we say, at least the European arm of that uh, of that law firm. So that doesn't exist uh, in that form uh, anymore. Um, but I, uh, you know, will always remain grateful to, you know, kind of the partners and the colleagues that I had at SJ Bowen because they set me off on my career uh, and I wouldn't be where I am today, uh, you know, had it not been for them. So, you know, I have no uh, I have no grudges or, or anything like that uh, uh, regarding SJ Bowen. It was a fantastic time. I learned a lot, fantastic colleagues. And so, you know, I have nothing negative, um, you know, to say about it from that point of view. Um, I mean, I think, you know, as a student, you need to really get yourself informed as to whether London makes sense uh, given the you know the area of work that you want to go in I mean there are uh, of course uh, you know many parts of the country and certainly the the other big regional centers and you know lawyers in Leeds and Manchester will tell you you can also do lots of uh, you know private equity and corporate work uh, you know in the in the northern centers but I think um, you know realistically there are certain areas where you know London is the preeminent um, you know, is the preeminent focus. And so, um, you know, look at what you're interested in doing and, you know, where are the law firms who are very good at doing that that you're interested in? And that, in many cases, will um, lead you to London. 
I mean, I applied and thank God for that uh, in the days before, you know, all day assessment centers and, and all this kind of thing. So I can't really say much about the, let's say, modern recruitment methods. Uh, when I was applying, it was still a bit more uh, a bit more old school, but it still you know, required me to do, I think, probably something like 60, 70 uh, applications that I tried to tailor as much as I could to the law firms I was applying to. Uh, and I got um I think two invitations to interview. One was at uh, CMS Cameron McKenna at the time, and then the other one was S.J. Bowen. Um, S.J. Bowen was already at that time well known for the fact that they liked to take on trainees who had a maybe slightly unusual background, and I clearly had an unusual background given my my postgraduate uh, uh, legal studies, and so I got uh, an offer from them. Uh, I apparently failed the verbal reasoning test at uh, CMS Cameron McKenna, but uh, you know that's uh, that's part of life, uh, I suppose, mm. and uh, worked out uh, worked out okay uh, for me. Um, so, I mean, securing a training contract was uh, was pretty tough, uh, and I think it's not got uh, any less tough, unfortunately, uh, in the meantime. So, I think uh, you know one should have no illusions about uh, uh, how easy or difficult it is. It is difficult. There is lots of competition out there. Uh, it's essentially a I would say a buyer's market as far as the law firms are concerned. Having said that, students coming into the job market these days, maybe also particularly after the COVID pandemic, uh, have quite different expectations uh, now. I mean, when I joined a law firm, um, you know, I fully expected to work very hard. I fully expected to be in the office five days a week. Uh, I didn't necessarily expect uh, a huge uh, U.S. law firm uh, salary. Of course, I didn't work for a U.S. law firm, but um, and I think all of those things have have changed. I think people are much more uh, interested in uh, work-life balance. They are much more interested in mental health. They're much more interested in the opportunities to work uh, remotely. And um, yeah, because I don't have any recent experience, I don't know how easy that is to uh, to gain. But I think it would also be uh, you know kind of false to assume that suddenly London has become uh, significantly uh, softer. Let's say it is still uh, a kind of hard grind. I think uh, if you join any meaningful size uh, city law firm, you will be working uh, late hours. You will be uh, potentially working at weekends, and uh, you may not be particularly uh, flexible. Um, but I think that is, I mean, certainly for me, um, it was something that really created a lot of the skills that I am now using on a daily basis. And and uh, and I think it depends on your family situation. I mean, at the time, I was, uh, I would say, young, free and single, and I didn't have any, um, you know, didn't have any any family commitments that could make, uh, you know, work life difficult. So I, uh, you know, happily worked until late in the night. I, um, you know, remember pulling a couple of all-nighters with a number of other trainees and it really you know it gives you a sense of common purpose and it really does uh, kind of band you together and and those those can be good times I mean they are exhausting mm. they are stressful uh, but um, yeah and it's not always like that uh, but um, but but I do think that um, you know you have to work hard you get paid very well uh, for what you do in fact if you look at your you know, I always thought when I looked at my chargeable rates, I could never believe that you know um, clients were paying as much money as they were for for my for my services. And I think uh, mm. you know, in particular as junior associates, um, you know, if you look at it dispassionately, uh, you know, you do wonder, um, you know, whether that all makes sense. Um, but so, I mean, I think London is um, is. I mean, I I always said that uh, my experience of London was that either I had. Uh, I was always lacking something uh, when I was uh, a student and I went to London, uh, you know, I always lacked the money. 
Uh, and when I was working there, I, I had the money, but I lacked the time to really enjoy mm. uh, kind of what London has to offer. And so, you know, you're always you're always struggling on one of those uh, on one of those aspects. Um, but um, but I think for any young lawyer out there who wants to uh, have a solid grounding in their career, uh, you know, a, a training contract and then hopefully a future career in a, in a good law firm in London is a is a very good uh, basis. And certainly it was for me. Uh, and you expect to work hard, you expect to be remunerated appropriately. And if you can get some more flexibility than I could at that time, uh, due to, you know, just the fact that law firm uh, working patterns have, have changed and evolved, uh, then so much the better. Yeah, definitely. And I know that you did that for 10 years. That's it's a long time to be yeah. sort of working those hours that you describe. But it sounds like looking back, you really... I've no doubt that it was very stressful at the time but it sounds like looking back it's kind of built like as you said built the skills and the experience that you have now so you've got that that foundation I know after the 10 years you returned home didn't you I I don't know what what I guess I'd like to know what the transition was like returning home but also if um the job you have now how it's different to you know, when you were working in London, it'd be interesting to know that. Yeah, I think um, I think on the one side there was a um, there was a very steep learning curve, um, uh, something I hadn't really expected quite so much because, of course, in a law firm, uh, you are uh, even as a senior associate working uh, with a partner and a number of other junior associates and maybe a team of paralegals on a big case like I was doing at the time before I left SJ when I was working on a major cartel case. And I was doing little else than this particular cartel case for uh, probably the 12 to 15 months uh, before I left. Um, mm-hmm. And I was, uh, you know, I was a small cog in a large wheel and you always had the partner who was, uh, let's say, client focused. And, uh, you know, you had little uh, interaction with the uh, with the clients, even though that was slightly different in my in my last case, because I was essentially the most senior uh, kind of associate on that uh, on that um, transaction. But when you when I entered, um, when I came to Siemens Energy, uh, sorry, when I came to Siemens AG uh, and started there, um, suddenly, you know, you are the one who is responsible for uh, the files and the matters that you deal with. Uh, Of course, you have uh, there's something that we refer to as the four eyes principle. In other words, you know, most of the stuff that you send out at the beginning uh, is looked at by somebody else just to make sure that you don't go kind of completely off the rails. Uh, but essentially, you are responsible for your own for your own matters. And so it's you know imperative that you are able to deal with your own workloads. You essentially develop your own clients. You know, you go to internal seminars where you meet other legal colleagues and then they know, aha, you know, Gordon is a competition lawyer. If I have a competition issue, I will go to him. And I still have people, you know, kind of 10, 12 years on who are, you know, uh, contacting me uh, on their daily issues because of the fact that we met at, you know, that kind of internal conference right at the beginning. Um, But the steep learning curve really was to, to kind of move out of the shadow of a partner and really be responsible by yourself for these matters and uh, you know it could well be that you advise on something and then three years down the line um, you know somebody will ask hey uh, you know kind of who advised on x or y matter and if it turns out to be you then you know it's your responsibility to uh, you know kind of stand up and be counted for whatever you have advised uh, uh, kind of at the time. Um, Then of course the other 
kind of major difference is that um, you know in a law firm you might be writing uh, long memos, you might be you know doing lots of drafting, etc. Whereas uh, a lot of work in house, I would say, is you know someone calls you on the phone, has a quick question, you answer. You may not have uh, necessarily the full. Uh, uh, information, then you need to ask a few follow-up additional questions, um, and it's uh, it's very it, it moves very quickly, but it's also sometimes at least not necessarily in the depth uh, that you might have uh, kind of in a law firm environment. So you know you will rarely spend days and days researching a particular point of law because you just don't have the time uh, you know to to go into it that that deeply, and that's often you know not necessary there may well be areas where that is necessary but it's it's i would say it's pretty um it's pretty rare um i mean what you always hear and i think a phrase that uh, in-house lawyers have come to uh, have come to dislike intensely is this whole uh, you know in-house lawyers are closer to the business yes that's true um and uh, it is also one of the most satisfying aspects if you if you're an if you're an in-house lawyer hopefully you will be involved uh, kind of right at the beginning of a project and you'll be able to shape it to make sure that it, in my case, complies with competition law, et cetera. And then you see it come to fruition or you see, you know, an M&A transaction being done and you say, hey, you know, this is a this is a big, important transaction, maybe important for the energy transition. Uh, and, you know, I played a little part in that and that's a very satisfying thing. And so you wouldn't get that feeling um, from working in private practice because you would be, you know, one step removed. So, you know, the, the basic statement is, of course, correct. Um, but I think there is much more, there is much more to it. I mean, you will see as an in-house lawyer that people internally treat you differently. Um, you know, you are one of them rather than, uh, you know, somebody external, and that can make quite a big, uh, quite a big difference. Um, but, you know, I, I would not want to, I would not want to rank, uh, you know, one above the other in terms of, you know, in-house is better than private practice or the other way around. For me, it was a natural evolution. I um, started off in a law firm. That is what most people would do. And then most people at a certain stage will get to a point in their career where they have to make a decision. Uh, do I want to stay at the law firm and try to make partner or do I want to do something else? And that something mm -hmm. else could be, uh, you know, I mean, some people leave the law, some people join you know the European institution some people join the government legal service uh, or some people go in-house and uh, I think um, you know that is a natural career progression we've seen recently some in-house lawyers returning to private practice that is something that uh, I don't think I will be doing uh, at any stage at least uh, certainly not part of the plan because um, I think that's a much more difficult move to make I think the the private practice to in-house move uh, makes sense uh, in-house back to private practice uh, you know having to start doing timesheets again and billing and all that kind of stuff uh, I'm not necessarily sure uh, that that's certainly not a way I would uh, I would want to go um, but for me it was natural so I I, mm. I made the decision reasonably early on that I didn't want to become a partner I didn't want the I didn't want the pressure I didn't want the the um, the requirements that you have to develop business, etc., all of the all of the financial topics, uh, and so uh, for me it was a natural move to uh, to move in house, uh, and I'm I'm happy uh, in house, and I don't uh, realistically, unless anything unforeseen happens, uh, see myself uh, rejoining a um, a law firm, um, but I think it's it's important uh, to to have experience of both, and uh, and also frankly for students, I mean if they can. Uh, during their studies, do something like um, work experience placements in in both areas. You know, so much mm -hmm. the better. 
the more you know about what is awaiting you. I mean, I, I had very little idea uh, of what was awaiting me at Siemens AG when I joined them. I had luckily done a um, secondment of a number of months at the BBC uh, when I was working at SJ Berwyn, and that was very helpful. Um, but um, And there are also amongst the in-house community these days people who say that actually there's no need to uh, work in private practice. You can start straight away uh, in-house. Um, you know, I'm 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 aware of the opinion. I'm of a slightly different uh, view, but I think that's something that everyone has to work out uh, for themselves as to what makes sense uh, for them. But I think that uh, law firms invest a lot of money in their trainees. You get trained very well. You get generally very good experience if you choose law firms who are very good at what they do. Uh, and I certainly had a very uh, good experience at SJ Bowen. SJ Bowen was one of the leading competition practices uh, in London, and uh, they did a wide variety of work, not just um, the M&A related uh, parts, so merge control, but they also did a lot of standalone competition work. Uh, they were very innovative for some of their clients and so uh, did big cartel cases, etc. Um, so I think I was very lucky uh, to join a team like that. And, um, and so you know, that for me was the right move, but whether it's the right move for everyone is uh, is obviously up to them. Brilliant, thank you. And some really interesting insight there into the differences between private practice and, and, and in-house. It sounds like you've been working in private practice for 10 years and it was a natural point for you to sort of reflect and evaluate, you know, where you were going to go next and what the options were. And, and um, you went on to working in-house and it sounds like that you enjoy that. And, and, you know, that's been a successful move. I know yep. some um, there are a few now in-house training contracts. And I do sometimes I've had a few students ask me about working in-house and training in-house. So I think that will be your insight there will be really useful for them to hear. And I, I wanted to ask as well, with um, moving back to Germany, what it was like returning as an English qualified lawyer, if there's anything, any comments you had about that? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the uh, when I when I was looking for, I mean, I got to a point at SJ Berwyn, as I mentioned just before, where I decided that I wanted to move in-house. And uh, unfortunately for me, uh, I started looking uh, right in 2008 uh, as the financial crisis uh, was biting. And um, so I had uh, a number of unsuccessful um, uh, applications to various in-house um, uh, positions. And it was really because that turned out to be so difficult that on the one side, I made the decision to apply to other law firms, even though I didn't end up joining another law firm. I did have a job offer, which I ultimately declined. Um, but then I also kind of broadened my mind uh, towards international and um uh, it's fair to say that uh, on the one side, international for me meant uh, potentially Australia, New Zealand. So I had some discussions with law firms over there because, again, uh, I was um, essentially um, kind of young, free and single at that time. Uh, and uh, and so could do um, uh, could do things unencumbered by uh, by family ties. Um, but on the other side, um, I then turned my my mind to, well, what about Germany? And um, I honestly, at the time, did not think uh, that a German company would employ an English uh, solicitor. I you know, couldn't really imagine that that would be the case. But um, in about uh, 2011, and at that time, my um, personal life had already had, had changed. I had got together with uh, 
uh, my girlfriend, who is now my wife and uh, mother of our two children. And and so uh, I remember saying to her, look, you know, I'm applying for this job at Siemens because um, uh, I'd, I'd heard about uh, Siemens, uh, you know, being in the market for uh, a senior competition lawyer. But I really applied, you know, just to see what would happen. But, you know, I had no expectation, realistically, that that it would be anything uh, that could work out. Um, primarily also because of the, the English solicitor angle. I just didn't, you know, couldn't see why they would employ someone like myself. Um, and, uh, and luckily for me, I was completely wrong uh, about that. And they were much more interested in uh, in my experience. They were much more interested in my law firm background. Uh, they were keen to uh, get an English native speaker into the team. I was the first uh, kind of English native speaker in a team which was already reasonably international. We had a Belgian colleague and uh, and various others. Um, but uh, of course, the vast majority were uh, were German. So uh, they were they were keen, I think, on that. Um, and uh, and as far as Siemens was concerned, the only requirement was that I had to be a, a lawyer qualified in my jurisdiction. That was the only thing that was important. So you know, as mm -hmm. for the rest of it, uh, it didn't matter. Um, and now, of course, using the dreaded uh, Brexit word, uh, Brexit did change things a little bit um, because uh, at that time, um, the EU uh, kind of rights that you have as a person, uh, you know, so, for example, as a lawyer with mutual qualification, uh, mutual recognition of qualifications, all of that fell away. Uh, and so we had a, a fairly intense phase where we had to figure out uh, how we could get on the role of solicitors in Ireland in order to keep our, let's say, EU rights, uh, you know, up to date. Uh, and so I, I am still uh, here in Germany registered as a European lawyer, but now on the basis of my role. Um, uh, so I'm on the role of solicitors in Ireland, uh, and that is enough uh, to to cover off the German angle. Uh, and then I'm also what is known as a, as a Sündikus Rechtsanwalt, which is a uh, essentially a, the, the German law concept of an in-house lawyer. Uh, and so with those two qualifications, uh, I'm OK to continue to work here. Um, but I mean, as I keep telling my German friends, these types of topics also have purely practical implications. I mean, when I was at the law firm in London, you know, I paid um, you know quite a lot of money at the time into uh, kind of a, a UK pension fund. Uh, and I frankly have no real idea as to how I'm going to get hold of that money at some stage when I when I retire. So, you know, kind of these topics do, you know, mm -hmm. kind of come back to uh, come back to bite you. And, uh, you know, these these consequences of being uh, kind of a UK solicitor, uh, kind of working abroad. Uh, I mean, it's always also a bit difficult with the with the SRA to make sure that they always have the right uh, kind of company name on your records and things like that. So there's a whole bunch of let's say administrative mm. rigmarole which uh, which goes along with uh, with with living abroad uh, but you know i continue to pay my uh, my 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 law society fees uh, i continue to be on the roll in the uk um i'm on the roll in ireland as i said and that's enough uh, in order to um to work for um for siemens or now siemens energy in germany so so it it works and i'm pleased that i opened my mind to international possibilities because frankly i wouldn't be uh, where I am today, if I had not, uh, if I'd not done that. Yeah, it sounds like quite a lot of administrative complications, definitely exacerbated by Brexit. But it sounds like the fact you were an English qualified lawyer was an attractive sort of attribute for where you're, you know, where you're now working. So you yes, and I, and, I, and I think that, and I think that that's, I think that that's something that that. Um, you know, law students and young lawyers shouldn't shouldn't forget. Uh, I mean, the the uh, 
legal qualifications that you get in the UK uh, are highly regarded uh, worldwide. And uh, and I think, uh, you know, clearly uh, German law students study law in a very different way. And, uh, you know, some would say more in-depth. Um, I'm not entirely sure whether in-depth is always uh, kind of effective or, or, or helpful. And I'm not I'm not denigrating the, um, you know, the German lawyers that I work with. Quite on the contrary, they are all uh, kind of excellent lawyers who I would uh, trust with my most uh, pressing uh, legal matters if it came to that. Uh, but I do think that um, you know, the UK legal profession is well regarded. And so, you know, you have skill sets there that are that are eminently transferable to other places. Now, of course, um, you know, as a result of Brexit, also uh, career opportunities, for example, at the European institutions that I mentioned earlier, you know, have are no longer available for UK uh, nationals. That's a pity, I think. Um, but but there are other, you know, there are international institutions. There's the UN, uh, you know, there's various other, uh, you know, various other institutions that one could think of. Um, and so, you know, there are plenty of options. Um, and uh, I think international, uh, you know, thinking internationally. And there are also tons of uh, tons of other companies who are looking for suitably qualified in-house uh, in-house lawyers. So there are certainly opportunities to uh, think more broadly than the UK. And I would certainly encourage uh, uh, our li- listenership to, um, you know, to, to consider those when they're thinking about uh, future career options. And it doesn't necessarily need to be the first step. Um, I think to move internationally, uh, it makes more sense to have a solid kind of basis first, maybe a couple of years in a law firm, a couple of mm-hmm. years uh, in the UK, um, you know, building the skills uh, and then considering uh, the move abroad, uh, maybe at the five, six year level, something like that. That sounds like really good advice. And just just one last question before we move on. I just I was thinking back to when you were working in London, you were explaining some of the, the long hours you were working. And I, I wondered if that's different now. Now you're working for Siemens Energy and you're working in-house. I know your personal um, circumstances have changed. You talked about being sort of young, free and single when you were living in London. Obviously, now you're, you've got a family. So I just wondered if you had you know, anything to share on that? Yes, I mean, uh, you would, I mean, put it this way, the, I don't think that anyone should make the move uh, in-house and expect uh, that work-life balance is somehow magically going to be, you know, going to reduce to nine to five and, uh, and that's going to be it. That is, that is far from the, far from the truth. Um, I think what, uh, what I certainly benefit from is a greater level of flexibility. So, so we have uh, a policy whereby uh, we are encouraged to go into the office, um, you know, a couple of days a week, uh, which I think is also uh, important, um, you know, to keep contacts uh, with uh, your colleagues and others that you work with. Um, but um, I've actually, and I think many people have made this experience in the in the COVID pandemic, uh, nearly ended up working more um, uh, as a result of working from home. Uh, than I do when I go into the office, because if I go into the office um, at some stage, you know, I will close my laptop, I will get in the car, drive home. uh, And then, you know, to open up the laptop again is probably a bigger step than it would be if you just had your laptop open, um, you know, in the room next to the kitchen and you think, oh, I'll just go and read a few more emails. Um, So I think, but what I've come to realise is that on the one side, in-house life, as I think I mentioned at the beginning, uh, is it's very fast moving. So, uh, you know, you have lots of things coming at you all the time and hopefully you won't get into a firefighting mode, but, you know, depending on resources, that can be a can be an issue. Um, but then fundamentally, I think it is up to you to to draw the line and to say, you know, this far and no further. 
And if you draw the line at, you know, two minutes to five in the afternoon, then, you know, that's not going to go well for long. But I think there are times when you have to say, look, um, you know, I cannot do it today. I will look at it first thing tomorrow. And that's the way it's got to be. Now, of course, you know, if you get a question from someone very senior, are you going to drop everything to do it? Yes, you are, because that's the way the world works. But I think there are plenty of other, uh, you know, so-called urgent uh, requests that, in fact, are maybe not quite as urgent as they're made out to be. Um, and I've also come to the firm conclusion that I am the ultimate arbiter uh, of my work-life balance, and I need to be the one who draws the lines to the extent that I can. And as I said, you cannot always do that. Uh, but you know, no one else is going to take on the job of making sure that you have enough time with your kids. You need to do that. Uh, and so it's an issue of prioritizing. I mean, I end up, um, you know, waking up pretty early, doing some sports. I try to fit in a run in the afternoon or over lunchtime. Um, and of course, that all takes time. But, you know, I will then make it up in the evening uh, and try to also still have some time to spend, you know, with my loved ones uh, uh, in the evening as well. And so uh, if you can get that done, then um, then then so much the better. But it is a challenge. It's a it's a constant challenge, I find, mm. and uh, something that you continually have to work on and you continually have to recalibrate uh, whether you've got the right you know, whether you've got the right balance. Uh, and I don't think anyone has ever been lying on their deathbed saying, God, I wish I'd worked harder. Uh, you know, uh, if in doubt, uh, it's probably the other way around. And so to come to that conclusion, not on your deathbed, but uh, a bit earlier in life uh, would be the, it's certainly my aim. Um, now, you know, some people who know me would say that I'm not not currently doing a good job of, uh, of uh, you know, taking care of my own work-life balance. It has been a challenge uh, recently, uh, but uh, but I'm aware of it. I'm working on it and I'm trying to uh, trying to make things better. Yes, very hard to achieve that balance, isn't it? And it sounds like whilst always a challenge, I sort of picked up there that maybe working in-house gives you a little bit more flexibility. To, to allow yourself to keep work, working towards achieving that balance. Yes, I think that's I think that's right because you are you are more likely to be able to uh, be in charge of your agenda. I mean, if uh, you know if if you're working in a corporate team and you know kind of twenty lawyers are working on a closing and you say, oh no, but it's Tuesday night and I always go out with my girlfriend at that time. I mean, that's just not going to work uh, in private mm. practice. Whereas hopefully, um, you know, in a in a private practice, in a in a in an in-house environment, you know, you should be able to say, look, you know, that evening is really not good, but you know, I'll, you know, do more on the day before or the day after, um, because you are more of a master of your time than you might be in private practice. I think that's the that's the key difference. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to know. So that's great. I mean, we've had a really interesting sort of account there of your career journey, and, and as we draw to a close I just thought it might be quite useful to ask you if you sort of take yourself all the way back to your undergraduate university self in your in your final year if there's sort of what advice would would you give yourself looking back? I do remember standing um, in one of the halls of the Amory building where they um, uh, they posted the results and uh, it was the most nerve wracking two minutes that I think I've I've ever had, um, maybe with the two exceptions of the births of my daughters. But apart from that, um, I, I remember vividly looking through the list and not realising that because we had done the LLB Euro with German, that we were on a separate list. So I went through 
kind of the first class honours, you know, 2-1, 2-2, couldn't find my name. Uh, it was in a complete panic, only then to realise that, you know, our results were on a different sheet of paper and thank God I'd got a 2-1 and, you know, my career was left intact. Uh, so so I, I, I do uh, do have much sympathy with all the final year students going through uh, what is, of course, for everyone, one of the most stressful uh, kind of times in their uh, in their life. I... I don't know if it's I don't know if it's advice as such, but I would I would say that uh, I certainly and I think I made it better in the in the final year than I did, for example, in the first year. I remember in the first year I I learned very inefficiently because I spent a huge amount of time in the library. I essentially wrote out kind of case summaries out of the books. Um, you know, onto my own kind of note paper, and I ended up with lever arch files full of stuff that you could never ever learn, that nobody could ever learn. And so I did a I did a huge amount of work, and I don't think that my marks ultimately reflected the amount of work that I'd done, and I consider that to be very unfair. Uh, and in particular, I consider that unfair because I could see other people who I knew were not doing a lot of work caution you know whoever tells you that they just rocked up to the exam and haven't done any revision they are all liars so don't trust you know anyone who says anything like that and don't be misled into trying to do something similar um you know these are often the people who swat up and then uh, you know tell tell porkies later uh, so don't uh, don't go down that road um but i think again it is a question of balance you need to do the work in order to understand the material but you also need to have let's say a manageable amount for you to to revise and to actually be able to remember because you know whatever whatever you have at some point read but cannot remember during the exam is completely pointless there's no there's you know, nobody's going to give you marks for something that they think might have been in your head at some point uh, in the past um and so uh, you know to work effectively and efficiently really is um, is key um and i think also that uh, i mean what i would certainly advise my uh, kind of daughters to do um, when it comes to, for example, how do you juggle kind of all the applications that you have to do together with, you know, the revision and the assignments and all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, again, you only have 24 hours in a day and you've got to sleep and you've got to eat and you've got to do various other things. And so really to make a to make a plan as to, you know, how much time am I going to dedicate to this? How much time am I going to dedicate to this? Uh, and, you know, do I really need to write 300 applications which already look on the face of them that I've not tailored them in any way, shape or form at all. You know, all of those are going to be standout rejected. Would it, it make more sense to invest the time in doing maybe 30 applications where I've actually thought about, you know, what law firms am I applying to? Why am I applying to the uh, uh, to them? Am I am I clearly explaining why this particular law firm is of interest to me because of something that I studied, something that I did, something that I have experience of? You know, I think to spend a little bit of time uh, planning um, you know, rather than just investing huge amounts of time in something which might not be effective, uh, is is what I would uh, is what I would suggest. And then the other thing that I religiously did for every exam in order not to run out of time, and something that I tell all my mentees uh, as well, is to divide the amount of points by the amount of minutes that you have, and spend the first two minutes of the exam doing a little maths exercise to say, okay, um, you know. 100 let's take 100 uh, marks you know full marks for four questions that means i should not be spending more than a quarter of my time on any question does not make any sense 
uh, if you spend three quarters of an hour on the first question and don't answer the other three, you know, you're not going to pass or at least, you know, you're not you're not going to get anywhere near uh, the result that you should. And so there is a real there is a real risk. And I see it and I've seen it so many times of uh, people getting their time management completely wrong uh, and therefore also really suffering in terms of their of their results. And I think that's just such a silly mistake to make and something that you can easily um, you know, you can easily think about at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, yes, you're stressed. Yes, you know, there's a lot on the line. Uh, but the worst you could do is to is to go completely over time on the first question and then not have time to to answer the last three. I mean, that's the that's the silliest thing you can do, in my in my opinion. Yeah, some some really good. It's but it's probably easily done, isn't it, when you're under that sort of real um, intense pressure. But yeah. Undoubtedly, because yeah. because you because you know there the may be a question that you know a lot about, and so you think, well, if I make this answer, uh, you know, tip top, then I'm halfway there, and that may be the case. Yeah. Uh, but you know, generally, you'll be able to get more marks out of a basic answer of one question rather than you know topping and tailing uh, the one that you've already done, uh, because whether you get uh, kind of seventy five or eighty five, um, you know, both is a first. Uh, whereas uh, if you get you know 40 or 60 is a is a big difference and so you know i think you have to focus on uh let's say the what economists would probably refer to as the marginal benefits and uh and that's that's really where you've got a where you've got to focus and uh, uh you know i remember well from my my exam days you know all of those people furiously scribbling at the end and you knew exactly what had gone wrong and it was it mm -hmm. was time management and it's and it would be particularly frustrating if you know um, you know, I knew the answer, but I just didn't have time. I mean, that's then completely, mm. uh, you know, thrown away marks. So that's, uh, you know, I mean, exams can go wrong. I think we have to be realistic. You know, people can have a bad day. People can, uh, you know, just have a mental a mental block. And, you know, these things unfortunately do happen. Mm. Um, but I think, uh, you know, you should do your utmost to not run into any or cause yourself any problems which are easily avoidable. And for me, the time management issue is one of those easily avoidable traps that you know with literally two minutes of work at the beginning uh you know can really help you to to get the most uh most exam marks possible yeah it's really good advice and it's have it going in with a strategy isn't it and and sort of knowing you've got that strategy um before you go in so that when you are under that level of pressure you know that it's there so yeah some really good practical advice there thank you and um as we draw to a close I just wondered if there's anything that I've missed then there's anything that maybe I haven't asked that you know you wanted to say there might not be but I just thought I would open up that opportunity before we finish yeah no I think uh, I think it's been uh, it's been an interesting uh, conversation it's always interesting for me to kind of reminisce about my student days that are now frankly uh, you know some some decades behind me but I do very much enjoy um, uh, you know, kind of talking to my mentees and, uh, you know, trying to give them a little bit of my experience. And that's also why I'm always happy to do uh, podcasts such as this, just to pass on, uh, you know, kind of little bits of experience that I've picked up uh, here and there. I think, um, it, you know, lots of people obsess about uh, uh, marks, they obsess about law firms, and I can understand uh, kind of all of that. Um, I mean, I think ultimately, you are not going to be a good lawyer if you do not enjoy what you do. So do spend some time to think about, you know, what 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 type of legal work do I want to do? What type of law firm or what type of company uh, would be good? 
uh, and reach out to people who are doing those jobs already. There is no better way of finding out uh, than to talk to people. I mean, you know, lawyers love nothing more than to go to conferences. And why do they go to conferences? Because they like to talk to like minded people. So if you find out that there is a if you're interested in, in competition law and you know there is a conference going on in London, usually students get heavily discounted or even free access. You will be able to talk to uh, you know, people who are working in that field, uh, they will get to know you. They will say, hey, maybe we have a VAC scheme coming up. Why don't you shadow me for two weeks or, you know, whatever it may be. But you, you've you got to make, um, you know, you've got to make things happen. And, uh, you know, if you just sit in your dorm room and, uh, you know, hope that the uh, job offers, offers come flooding in, uh, sadly, you're going to be disappointed. And uh, so I think, you know, work placements are key, contacts are key, uh, you know, set up a LinkedIn uh, profile relatively early, um, you know, join relevant groups, uh, get involved in discussions. You know, no one's going to expect a student to be a thought leader in a certain area. But at least, you know, if people see you, start making connections. You know, all of these things are uh, are important because, you know, you never know um, when something might might pan out. And I mean, for me, you know, my move to Siemens um, and my move to Germany uh, was basically because I talked to a friend of mine who knew someone at Siemens who had told him that they were currently looking for a, for an antitrust lawyer. Otherwise, you know, I would never have ended up uh, where I ended up. So really a chance uh, meeting. But if you don't stay in touch with people, if you don't connect with people, then you're not going to have those opportunities. So I think that's something. And that's, of course, some people might say that's another thing on my to-do list. When am I going to find time to do this? But, you know, these are the areas where you have to focus. Uh, yes, you have to focus on your degree. Yes, you have to focus on getting the good marks to do the exams well, etc. All of that, you know, as a given, you have to apply to the right law firms, etc. Um, but then it's also a, a matter of essentially marketing yourself, you know, uh, in particular on the private practice side, uh, you know, even long established partners, they are marketing themselves all the time, they go to events, they talk to clients, they, you know, and all of these things to generate business to, you know, be known, um, because you want to be the one who pops into clients' heads if they have a particular problem. Um, and, you know, equally, and that's the same for me at Siemens Energy. If someone has a competition or problem, I want them to think about my colleague and myself uh, and not somebody else, because we are the experts who deal with this area. And with that kind of mindset, um, I think you can go far. Definitely. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you so much for your time today. That's been interesting, but also I, I know that it will be so useful for our students to hear your experiences. So um, thank you again for your time today. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. This was the Career Zone podcast brought to you by the University of Exeter Career Zone. Check out iTunes and Spotify to keep up with all of our regular releases. And if you'd like us to cover something else in another episode, just send us a message, hashtag careerzonepodcast at UOE Careers on Twitter or at UOE Career Zone or at UOE Cornwall Career Zone on Instagram. And we'll follow up in one of the next episodes.